Hello everyone, my name is Jonathan Chan. Welcome to another episode of Romans. Today, we will be going over chapters 3, verse 21, to chapters 4, verse 25, entitled, Family. Now, before we begin, let us start off with a video clip, and we'll be right back. Right, let's get the spiel. Just know that me and Rosa, we get it. We were foster kids back in the day. Ooh, back in the dark ages. Girl, <laughs> I'm young at heart. Got my finger on the pulse. Yeah, that's a reference to his blood pressure because he's old. <laughs> Billy, do you have any food allergies? I wish you did. Darla's cooking. Oh, yeah, Victor. What? We know how overwhelming it can all be. New house, new faces. All in your face? Just take it at your own speed. for the welcome party. <laughs> yeah, that thing growing out of the couch would be Eugene. Is that him? Oh my gosh, really? Oh, slow down, slow down. Welcome home. And that's Darla. I'm Darla. Big hugger. I noticed. Die, die, die! He doesn't mean that, it's a game. Hey, no sodas after dark, remember? Whoa, when did it get dark? Oh, the poster, I made you one, come look. Oh, no! Sorry, Pedro must have been working out. His goal is to get slow. Here. Yes, exactly why your math department is so uniquely suited for me. I can't, I can't even with Eugene right now. Sorry, Mary, hi, college interview. I'm Billy. What am I most excited about? Oh, what a great question. I was hoping you'd ask. Mention you're a foster kid. Colleges eat that up. What I'm most excited about is the campus experience. As a foster child, I'm a big believer in finding family and friends in the most unlikely of places. Oh, I'm gonna miss that girl so much. It's Caltech. It's a very prestigious school. Also all the way in California. But we don't have to talk about that right now. It's a tough subject for me. Do you like vegan food? Because mm. see, I love animals. Like Billy Batson's foster family with a mishmash of people from all backgrounds, God's family consists of a mishmash of all sorts of people. See, if you group all the churches together around the world, God's family, his people, consists of a wide era or array of diversity. However, no matter how diverse God's family is, there is one common thread that unites us all, the pastoral or the faith and faithfulness in Jesus. In the chapters that we will be exploring today, Paul explains what this family is, how to get into God's family, and why this pastoral in Jesus grants people this access and privilege to be in God's family. Now, Paul will do more of this explaining in later in Romans. So this 
since we're so early in Romans, this is more like episode one, family. So let's begin. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. And he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Right with God. Paul repeats this phrase quite often in these six verses. So what does it mean then? What does it mean to be right with God? Recall when we started our journey in Romans, I reminded everyone that we needed to keep Genesis in the rearview mirror because Paul, as a Jew, is always keeping Genesis in mind. Why is that? It's because when we explored Genesis in our last sermon series, we were given the reason why humanity was not right with God. A phrase that is repeated often not just in these six verses, but often throughout Romans. What made humanity not right with God? Humanity sinned, i.e. they disobeyed God's commands, they didn't trust God, and went off on their own. In other words, they broke the covenant initially made between humanity and God. And what was this original covenant that God made with humanity? Well, God told them, trust and obey me and you will be in his presence. You will be in God's presence with eternal life, fruitful and flourishing. Disobey and distrust God. Humanity will be apart from God and will face the ultimate punishment for their sin, i.e. elimination, permanent death, including the elimination of all sin and sinners. But here's the problem. When humanity sinned and turned away from God, did they cease to exist? No. Instead, by God's grace, he removed them from the garden and protected them. Yet humanity continued to spiral in their sin while God, being patient, continued to give them opportunities to repent and turn back. But as God remained patient, humanity's sin was left undealt. How long then will humanity continue to sin? When will God lay the final judgment and eliminate all sin, including the perpetrators of the sin? Can God's word be trusted then? Is God faithful to the covenant he made with humanity? In other words, is God righteous? Then we came to encounter Abraham. And God makes a new covenant with Abraham to provide the solution to deal with sin. In, in other words, providing a way for humanity to be made right with God 
so they will not be deemed as a sinner and receive the penalty for it. Abraham and his descendants were chosen by God to live a life of faith through trust and obedience and was given the Torah to let them know if they were straying away. However, as we know throughout their history, in the Old Testament and in the New, they failed miserably. And because of their failure, they too fell with the rest of humanity. Instead of being the light, delivering to the world the message of trust and obedience to God, ushering nations into God's presence, they became part of the problem rather than the solution. The law that was to show them if they were straying away became a consistent reminder of how far off the mark they were. So, therefore, in verse 23, Paul says this, All have sinned and have fallen short of God's glory. So now we have two problems then. There are two covenants that God needs to fulfill, right? First, the original one. Sin needs to be dealt with because humanity sinned and turned away from God. Who's going to do that? Who's going to pay the price for this? Humanity has to pay the price, but is there a representative of humanity that will pay the ultimate price? Sin needs to be dealt with. And second, God still needs to remain faithful to his promise that Israel, his chosen people, were to lead nations into repentance and faithfulness to him. See, God cannot change his mind. He cannot back out on his covenants or else he's not righteous. Nor can he continue redeeming the world through the current state of Israel. He can't continue to use Israel in their current state because that would be ignoring Israel's sin. And if you ignore Israel's sin, it means that you're playing favorites. You can't do that. God cannot do that. He shows no partiality on that. Yet there needed to be a true Israelite, someone who can represent Israel and not only just Israel, but the entire humanity to fulfill the Abraham covenant through faithfulness and obedience to God and solve the original covenant of satisfying sin's deserved judgment. And right here in this passage, we just read it. It's Jesus who fulfills both. When God presented Jesus as a sacrifice in verse 25, that's what Paul said in verse 25, the original Greek for this phrase reads this, God places Jesus on the mercy seat. Now, that's imagery taken from the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat was the lid of the Ark where God's presence resided and where he delivered mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is defined as withholding what we deserve, i.e. God withheld punishment for our sins. How did God withhold this? By offering Jesus to take on the punishment, the death penalty of our sins through his brutal death on the cross. And not only that though, he conquered death through his resurrection because Jesus' faithfulness and obedience earned him that resurrection. If you recall in Genesis, humanity was promised that if they remain faithful to God, they will be in his God's presence, i.e. no death but eternal life with God. And now, we not only have Jesus fulfilling the first covenant of paying the price for our sins, we also see Jesus fulfilling the covenant of remaining faithful to God because he has eternal life. 
So there's that first covenant. How about the second covenant with Abraham? Did Jesus fulfill that too? Yes, Jesus fulfilled that. Israel was to be the faithful servant of God, the messenger and the usher to lead nations into God's presence. Jesus, being the faithful and obedient Israelite, fulfills that covenant as well. Two covenants completed by one person in Jesus. And here's the amazing thing. Because Jesus has fulfilled these covenants and because he is now humanity's representative in fulfilling these covenants, humanity is now given a new way of making right with God through the pastuo in Jesus, the faith and faithfulness in Jesus. Believing that Jesus has done this, i.e. faith, and remaining faithful to Jesus, which Paul will elaborate on when we go through this letter in Romans. Through this pastuo, this faith and faithfulness in Jesus, we are made right with God. And therefore, we too belong in God's family, i.e. those who are right with God. Not by following rules or who carries the biggest badge, etc. Faith in Jesus, and hence Paul, sorry, faith in Jesus is what gets us into God's family. Hence, Paul concludes chapter 3 saying that if it is faith in Jesus, and has nothing to do with our badges or merits, then we cannot brag or boast about it by forcing others to carry those badges to be in God's family. He goes like this in verse 27. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. Let's move on to chapter 4, verse 1. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God, who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. Now, Paul revisits Abraham and explains why this pastuo in Jesus grants us access to be in God's family, i.e. sins forgiven and made right with God. When God made the covenant with Abraham, it came after Abraham believed in God's promise. Abraham was right with God, i.e. in God's family, when he believed, i.e. had faith in God. Abraham didn't have the law, i.e. the Torah, in his hands because it didn't come to fruition yet. So he couldn't have fulfilled the law and say to God, Hey God, I deserve to be in your family because I followed the law to the T. Nope, he couldn't do that because he didn't have the law. Nor was he circumcised because God didn't tell him to get circumcised until after 
he made the covenant with Abraham. So God accepted Abraham into his family, i.e. made Abraham right with God because of Abraham's faith. Paul emphasizes this point comparing with wages. You see, he's telling the Jewish Christians, you can't work yourself into a family. Like Billy Batson, who has to believe in his family to be part of the family, just like Abraham, we need to believe in Jesus to be in God's family, i.e. right with God. Let's move on to verse 9. Now, is this blessing only for the Jews or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Well, there you go. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous, even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. Folks, I'm married, but I don't have my ring on because it can't seem to fit on my finger due to the rough, thick skin that developed when I exercised. However, if I don't have my ring on, does that mean I'm not married? Clearly, I cannot present to you my marriage certificate because that's stored away in a safety deposit box. And clearly, I cannot show you my ring because that's stored safely as well. Safely as well. How can I prove to you and everyone else that I'm married to my smoking hot wife? Through my faithfulness and loyalty to my wife. Regardless whether I have any of the visual badges on me, like the ring or the marriage certificate, it's my faithfulness and loyalty to my wife that tells everyone I'm married. Now, conversely, if I do have my rig on and I showed you my marriage certificate, yet do not show any faithfulness, loyalty, or love towards my wife, no intimacy and not trustworthy for my wife, I'm really not married, even though I have all these badges of marriage. Same goes for God's family. Paul is telling the Jewish Christians that like marriage, these badges are just signs of what's really inside. And if we do not behave what's inside according to the badges, that the signs that we have, then really there's no point in having these signs, i.e. the first chapter, the first couple of chapters that we explored. The first member of God's family was Abraham. And the following members, his descendants, the Israelites, were to be as well in God's family until they completely lost their way and focus more on just the visual badges as opposed to faithfulness and obedience to God. Paul is telling the Jewish Christians, watch out. Don't be like those Jews who think that keeping these badges will enable you to be in God's family. No, pastoral in Jesus, the faith and faithfulness in Jesus is what makes you right with God just like the first member of his family did, Abraham. Abraham was deemed right with God because of his pastoral in God, not because of his badges, not because of circumcision, not because of the Torah. It was because of his faith and faithfulness in God. Paul tells the Jewish Christians, you can't depend on the badges 
It's just like me. I cannot depend on just merely the ring and the certificate to say that I'm married. No, it depends on your faith, your pastoral in Jesus. And so, if we consistently, Paul says, if we consistently depend on these badges, it will just basically remind us of how far we have fallen short to God's family. And so in order to be in God's family, we have to remove ourselves from these badges and focus on having faith in God, faith in Jesus, the pastoral in Jesus. Paul round off this segment with this in verse 13. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and its descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on the right relation with God that comes by faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it whether or not we live according to the law of Moses. If we have faith like Abraham's, for Abraham is the father of all who believe. Question is, but what does this pastoral look like? What does this faith and faithfulness look like? How are you to have faith and faithfulness in Jesus? Paul says you don't have to look too far. Follow Abraham's example. And he goes like this in verse 17. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Believing that God can do amazing things, that's pastoral. Let's be real here, folks. God promised to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, not just ethnically, but globally. But for Abraham and Sarah, they were old, real old. Their childbearing years sailed away a long time ago. Yet Abraham believed that God will fulfill his promise. But Abraham's faith was what I would quote from N.T. Wright. He called Abraham's faith as ridiculous faith. His, Abraham's ridiculous faith is what made him right with God. That's the type of faith we need to have in Jesus. What does this pastoral look like? It has to be a pastoral that goes beyond imagination. It goes beyond all possibilities. What We have to be able to have with this pastoral in Jesus to believe that Jesus can do the impossible. See, logically... It's absurd to believe that someone would die for someone else's sin, for someone else's punishment. It is absurd to believe that someone would die for 
all of humanity's due penalty of their sin. And not just that, it's even more absurd to believe that someone rose on the third day to conquer death and provide humanity with a way out of sin's grasp and into God's family, i.e. made right with God. This kind of faith to believe this is what Abraham and what N.T. Wright would describe as ridiculous faith. Abraham's faith believed that God can do the impossible. We too need to have that type of ridiculous faith in believing that Jesus did the impossible, that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, conquered the penalty of death through his resurrection, and made the way for us that when we believe in him and have this faith in what he has done, we are in God's family and made right in God. God's family are those who have ridiculous pastuo in Jesus, for through their pastuo, they are made right with God. Amen.